Aloha, I'm Ash. Aloha, I'm Matt. And we are the Yoga Couple. Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Work Podcast. I cannot believe that it's almost May 3rd. Well, when you guys are listening to this, it probably will be a little past that, but we're recording right now. It's May 1st, and it is almost a year anniversary from when the volcano <laughs> erupted. Some of you might remember when that was happening to us, and we were evacuated from, from our home. How do you feel about that? Yeah, lava erupted a few streets, not even a few, like one street down from our house. And it was a really traumatic, interesting time with earthquakes like every 10 minutes. And um, we had like a 6.9 just, just, just the fear of, of thinking that lava was underneath us and we could feel it underneath our, our house. And when we were sleeping at night, it was really eerie. And you just you just had this constant anxiety of... Oh, the lava could come up from underneath us at any moment right now, you know, and it was a really, really weird time to reflect back on. And Ashley in, in took it to a whole other level too. And I think eventually after this started erupting and um, we started researching this island and the volcanic activity, I think her panic and fear took itself to a whole other level. Yeah, you say? <laughs> I think... I was just overwhelmed with the amount of seismic activity that was happening on the island and I've never really experienced earthquakes before and I'm fear as you guys know is already the theme of consciousness that I struggle with so I was totally getting triggered by fear during this this mm. experience last year around the same time the anniversary and I had indulged in that theme of consciousness so intensely like just following my what if scenarios down the rabbit hole of what could happen with this volcanic eruption that I just started Googling and researching everything that had to do with the volcano so that I would constantly be up to date and was going down the rabbit hole of all of these like conspiracy theories and what if scenarios. I was watching all these YouTube videos and I let myself indulge in this fear and it brought me to this um, information that was not true or maybe could be true maybe millions of years from now, but there's this there's this rift on the Hawaiian Islands called the Helena Slump, and it's this um, part of the Kilauea volcano that's slowly sliding. It's like a giant, massive landslide. It's, uh, I think, like, what was it, 40 miles wide? Oh, I think it's way bigger than okay. that. Okay, and we, we lived on it. I mean, our house was on the Helena Slump, mm -hmm. and the theory is, is that if the volcano erupts, this landslide or a big enough earthquake or a big enough earthquake over a seven it. think of an avalanche if it knocks it off it will create this massive tsunami that a thousand will foot tsunami just around the islands and then it'll travel out obviously in all directions and hit everyone else with massive yeah. so it's basically an apocalyptic yeah like, end of the world end of the world scenario, scenario. <laughs> and ashley became so consumed with this that it was reality and that's actually like what we're going to talk about today in addressing fear and panic and the interesting thing about it is uh, as we're going to get into is your what if scenarios these fear scenarios they go from imagination to like wow this could happen to like no it is happening yeah i didn't i in this point in time when the all the volcanic eruptions were happening i did not think like what if the helena slump fell off i like indulged so deeply in it that i was certain i she was like no it is i remember the day very clearly i at like nine o'clock at night was like, this is it. Uh, the Helena slump is going to fall off. It's just a matter of when it could be in 30 minutes. It could be in three hours. It could be tomorrow. 
it's gonna fall off and we have mm-hmm. to get off the she, island she, and there was no reasoning with you no so i made matthew pack up the car and we drove to the top of mauna kea and <laughs> the other side of the island which is you know how high is mauna kea like where were we where at? we were parked is like four no maybe even six thousand six thousand feet, feet because i thought the tsunami was going to be a thousand foot tsunami so i needed to sleep he's like we need to be at least a thousand feet. yeah so <laughs> okay, i made him drive me up like nine o'clock at night to sleep in the car at four four thousand feet and then book at nine o'clock we woke up at like two in the morning and then we were like we gotta get out of here And then I made you book a ticket off the island, you know, the next morning and I packed up everything and we, that was no reasoning with me. I just, I was in a state of panic, hyperventilating, couldn't sleep, couldn't breathe. And we flew off the island. But this is just my story of uh, panic, of, of anxiety building into a a panic attack where you're literally no longer rational. Yeah. And you've had only a few other ones that were that intense and, and kind of the backstory on this, if you remember last episode, we talked a lot about how, you know, we each have our, our emotional neurological reflexes are, we we each have our own emotional addiction, shall we say that, that we revert to in times of crisis and a fear and anxiety just happened to be Ashley's. So it's really interesting that today we are interviewing Tom Bunn, who is the author of Panic Free, the 10 day program to end panic, anxiety and claustrophobia. And his research all comes from, especially as a, a prior pilot and now a therapist as well. He has been really addressing the fear and the panic of flying. And obviously as a pilot, he came across this just thousands of times, dozens of, you know, just endlessly. And so this really gave him the opportunity to really learn how to effectively handle panic and actually help people. Uh, His success rate is like phenomenally high. And it's going to be really exciting to hear his take on how these you know, it's it's funny because he literally, you know, it says in his book about how we can have all these cognitive plans and these breathing techniques and things like that. But if we're not doing our actual inner work beforehand, that the fear will take over and it can f- come into full-blown panic exactly like Ashley was just describing, where no matter how much she was breathing, no matter how much I tried to talk with her, no matter how much we tried to do all these things, it was just, it was the, the, her her system was too triggered at that point, as Tom would say. It was too aroused. And it's really interesting to look at this now a year from, you know, a year ago now and, and to look back on it and now be reading this book, Panic Free, and kind of see, wow, um, no wonder that didn't work. Yeah. And this episode is going to be really good for anybody who struggles with you know, anxiety, social anxiety, anybody who's been prescribed medications like Xanax, which is super common. And even in the wellness industry, I know plenty of people who, who are on medications like Xanax as a, just a day-to-day almost like go-to method for just dealing with the mundane, um, obligations and stresses and things of life. It's, it's kind of become a really part of our culture to medicate for for anxiety and overwhelm and stress and what tom's book panic free really addresses is how to alleviate you know all forms of fear from the from the minute anxiety all the way up to the full-blown panic attacks that i was just describing that i had last year um, in a really holistic approach so without further ado let's bring him on tom bun tom bun welcome to the show
Welcome, Tom. We are so excited to have you on the Inner Work Podcast. I'm actually holding your book right now, and this is the perfect book for me because I am actually someone who suffers from panic attacks. So it couldn't okay. be more perfect. And um, we're we're really excited to just get into like this is such an interesting book because it's it's a 10-day program to ending panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia, which is a very specific topic. So the first question we have is what even inspired your quest to help people who suffer from panic attacks? It, it really came about completely by accident. I was a pilot at Pan Am. One of our pilots had a fear of flying course, and he said, hey, Tom, would you help me with this course as a volunteer? And I said, no, his name is Truman Cummings. We called him Slim. And we said, I said, no, Slim, I don't want to be around a bunch of crazy people. Why would anybody be afraid of flying? He says, ah, come on. I'm doing a course over at Newark Airport. I was based at uh, Kennedy Airport. And he, he says, come over, take a look. And I was amazed. All these people were very bright and very imaginative. And guess what? That's part of the problem. <laughs> they have so much intelligence they can think of so many things that could go wrong and they're so and it's so the imagination mm. is so vivid they can turn them into reality and and as if it's really happening on the plane even though everything's okay they can imagine something awful is about to happen um and part of the program was relaxation exercises breathing exercises and slim told them if they would do the breathing exercises that would take care of their feelings yeah, it's a little overstated to say the least because at the end of the course we did a graduation flight so-called and we would you know have the whole group on an airplane um and slim and i and maybe another pilot or two would be there to help out and there they were some of them at least sitting there doing their breathing exercises in a state of full-blown panic <laughs> thought, oh, this is awful so you know slim would say you know, he couldn't fault them with their, their breathing, but he said, well, you guys didn't let go. The idea was if you just let go and just don't stress about it, then you're not going to be stressed. Well, that's kind of oversimplified, I guess. Anyway, I, I said, look, I think we should do some cognitive tools to help people deal with the panic. And he said, okay, we will, but it never happened. So <laughs> after a couple of years, I set up SOAR, and uh, which is seminar anxiety relief but i really wanted to just call it sore <laughs> to tell you mm. the truth. um and and the cognitive helps some people but there were a lot of people that did nothing for because when you go into a state of panic your ability to do active thought intellectual thought you can do stuff that maybe that's routine to you but as far as actually doing real thinking, nah, you can't. So the short version of this is when panic hits, you've got no cognition to do cognitive with, and it wasn't working. And I tried for years to get cognitive to work, and it just never happened. But I stumbled on something um, that was working, kept work developing it so that that was helpful. But what was happening was that we found that if a person would link to a memory of a time when they produced oxytocin, that would help a lot. It started with seeing people do their relaxation exercises on the plane and in a state of panic. After 
quite a number of years. We had typical people going through the course, and we were getting about 80% success with uh, stopping panic on the airplane, which is a pretty tricky place. You know, you don't have control, you don't have escape, you're way off the ground. Um, you're in this plane with all these strangers. Not, It's not common. Um, so to, to be able to stop panic on an average of 80% with these people was, you know, pretty good. But people I spent counseling sessions with to really fine-tune it, it was just about 100%. Amazing. So I was figuring, I wasn't thinking about panic on the ground because I figured cognitive behavioral therapy is taking care of that. But I don't know how what caused me to do it, but I just decided to take a look at the research. And sure enough, it turns out only 17% of people who are treated with cognitive on the ground uh, become panic-free. So if we were doing 80 or higher in the air, which is a very difficult situation, maybe we should do something about panic on the ground. So that's the long story that covers the whole metamorphosis mm. about how this came to be. Amazing. I love how you were saying all the, um, you know, you can do all these these different methods, but then in the moment of actual panic, there's so much automatic things going on that it just sounded like uh, you noticed it just really wasn't effective. And, and after reading your book, I love how we're obviously going to get into the method uh, later, but just how basically what you were just saying is is you can actually start to reprogram this this deep automatic behavior by associating it with a calming effect. And I can't wait to hear more about that. One of the first questions that I'm sure some of the listeners have and that I think a lot of our uh, Western culture has kind of been programmed to go to is, you know, are we supposed to turn to medication to relieve panic? And anxiety, yeah, fear. Yeah. Like a lot of people are on uh, medication to alleviate anxiety. That's a pretty common thing. Well, yeah, because it's an easy way out if it does get you out. But it, once again, the results can be pretty limited of that. Yeah, what's your, um, what's your stance on that? Because I love that you're, you know, you're obviously writing this book as the presentation of you can, you don't, you don't need those things. Which we agree with. <laughs> yeah, we totally agree. So I'm curious well, what your take yeah. is. Well, let me start off saying years ago, I went to a conference given by a drug company. And it, most of the people there were, were psychiatrists or, or PhD psychologists. I was a social worker with license for, as a therapist. But since most of the people there were psychiatrists, what happened was interesting. Um, they were talking about uh, Xanax, and the person leading the um, leading the presentation said, "How many of you never prescribed Xanax?" And a third of the people's hands went up. Wow. A third of the people who there are psychiatrists never prescribe it. And I said, and then the next was, "How many of you?" prescribe it and lie about it <laughs> and a third of the hands went up wow. because some of these psychiatrists prescribe it but they didn't want anybody that they were associated with professionally to know that they use this medication because it's mm. so controversial and they said how many people have you prescribe it and don't mind anybody everybody knowing that you prescribe it and about a third of the hands went up so that's when i realized this thing is pretty controversial and why it's so addictive and then when you start taking mm. it, you get some, probably some relief, but then mm, kind of wears off and then you have to take some more. And then after a while that kind of wakes, uh, wears off and then you take more. Um, then coming off, it's very difficult. It's such an ad addictive 
a medication that if you if you find at some point you have to take off take it come mm-hmm. off it if you knew how difficult it was you probably wouldn't go in yeah and I, i've also heard you could now, get worse you know once you come off of it because you're not you're not dealing with the root of the anxiety or the fear that you come off of it you're so it's such a crutch that it could actually perpetuate the problem even worse when you come off of it well yeah probably in just ordinary things but some of the really interesting research on it was done by the stanford university school of medicine uh, out in in San Francisco area, they took um, they took twenty eight people who uh, were troubled with uh, panic attacks and fear of flying. Uh, split them into two groups, and they put them on a very short flight on a turboprop, twelve minute flight, I think it was. Um, had them all hooked up to monitors of various kinds. Half the group were given Xanax, half the group were given a placebo, and on the first flight. Um, the, the people who had the placebo, I think it was 43% of them reported a panic attack. Of the people who had the Xanax, it was, I believe, 17%, 14%, somewhere in that area. Wow. So, obviously, the Xanax was helping. So, okay, a week later, they come back, and they're going to go cold turkey. Everybody is going to have no meds. And the reason for this research, they, they said, was to see if you use meds to give yourself a good flight does it then if you don't take meds help out on the next flight so mm-hmm. what happened next was kind of surprising the people who had the placebo on the first flight 43 percent, i think it was panicked it went down to about half so what does that mean they got some benefit from desensitization okay mm-hmm. what happened to the people who had the xanax on the first flight only i think it was somewhere in the teens uh was a panic rate and so you would think well at worst without xanax they would be where the placebo group was on the first flight somewhere mm-hmm. in the 40 percent area it went up to 73 percent oh wow interesting and so they said what the heck is going on here so they started looking at the data and they found something interesting the people who had placebo on the first flight when they were when they were revved up because of the stress of being on the flight their heart rate averaged around 104 beats per minute the people on the xanax it was up around 117 beats per minute so why is it if you're taking meds you're more physiologically revved up and what they theorize is there's something about taking a benzodiazepine that kind of disconnects your automatic regulation from your intellect or it's just some mm. kind of a break in the natural system for regulating yourself so it's kind of like saying well okay i'm really revved up but i don't give a damn <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's kind of the situation they were put into and so what they were saying is they believe because their heart rate was so much faster than the placebo group that something about being on the flight was unconsciously sensitizing them to flying so mm. they believe that if you continue taking benzodiazepines as you fly as you continue flying you become more and more sensitized to flying and what i've heard from people who came into the fear of flying program uh having first tried using uh benzodiazepines they said it worked for a while but as they continued to use it it got less and less effective and now it did nothing for them fascinating so that fits in with what the research shows wow 
And to clarify real quick too, because I feel like uh, people will use these medications for various reasons. Uh, can you clarify for us as you do in the book, what's the difference between anxiety and panic? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that would uh, can relate to, to both those. So just wanted to clarify moving forward. Well, I, th- I think it's kind of that in anxiety and panic, you get revved up and you're uncomfortable. But in panic, you feel like you have no escape. Mm. Whereas in anxiety, you may have something you can do to get out of the situation, but you don't like what you would have to do to get out of it. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm really, uh, I really resonate a lot with what you were saying, uh, right in the beginning, actually, it was really fascinating. I've never heard someone put it that way is sometimes if you are a really intellectually driven person, you can actually scare yourself worse, which I found really interesting. I want to hear more on that. You, you say in the book also that same note that imagine danger can cause panic more easily sometimes in real danger. And it really just, just thinking about that brought me back to what you said in the beginning of, of uh, uh, in some cases, when we have a good imagination, it can actually work against us. So could you maybe elaborate more on that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is there's uh, a guy named Donald Hebb. <clears throat> He's no longer alive. He's considered the father of modern um, neurology. He taught at McGill University in Canada. And he's quoted as saying, the more intelligent you are, the more anxiety you're going to have because the more things <laughs> wow. you can think of to worry about. Wow, so, interesting. Congratulations, Ashley. Donald Hebb has blessed you with, <laughs> made you, identified you as very intelligent. Okay. Um, so, That's interesting. Uh, so when, when people panic on the plane at least they don't panic as much necessarily as they do when they think about getting on the plane because when they think about getting on the plane they can think what if this what if this what if this what if this Mm. and they can get one shot of stress hormones after another after another but on the plane things slow down the things that they're afraid are going to happen they're now just kind of waiting for a movement or waiting for noise and they there's some stress from just waiting but the things that actually zap them, noises or motions, they don't happen so often. Right. So I think that, 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 do you remember those movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, those, those adventure movies, there's, there's the, there's the boulder, there's the, the poison darts, there's the assassins, there's all these things. So Indiana Jones is facing one danger after another after another, and we sit there on the edge of our seats because this is all very exciting to see one life-threatening situation after another. Mm. So if you can think, if you can imagine one thing after another, you can drive yourself right up to panic. But oftentimes it's just one thing that comes to mind that you expand into a life-threatening situation that it isn't. For example, if you have some stress and you feel your heart beat faster, you could say, oh, my goodness, am I okay? Uh, You start thinking about it. You say, what if this is a panic attack? Or, wait a minute, what if this is a heart attack? Well, thinking about the possibility that right now your heart could be doing something that is going to end up in your being no longer alive. That's a stress-producing situation. That's a stress-producing thought. So you produce more stress hormones. Mm -hmm. And what happens is ordinarily when you're fairly calm, 
cool, calm, and collected, you can tell the difference between your imagination and reality and your perception. Like um, right now, if I look out the window here, I see some green leaves on the tree. That's just clearly perception, right? I know that I'm seeing that. Um, I could say, but wait a minute, let me think back to two months ago. Those, there was no leaves on the trees. They were bare. That's memory. I, I can tell the difference between perception and memory. Now, what if I say, okay, those leaves are green, but what if I made them purple? Wouldn't that be fun? That's imagination. So how do you know which you're doing? Um, Peter Fonagy, who's a theoretician uh, in England, says it's reflective function. We have an ability to look inward and see what kind of processing we're doing. Like on a computer, are you, are you surfing the internet? Are you doing a word processing? Or are you sending emails? So you know what you're doing. Well, in your mental activity, if you can say, okay, right now I'm doing perception, then you would figure that what you, what's in your mind is coming from the world around you. If you say, okay, now I'm remembering, you know it's coming from the past. And if it's imagination, you know that you're doing a little bit of work to create something that doesn't exist. Mm. But when you get stressed, you stop doing reflective function. And when you stop doing reflective function, you don't know that you stopped doing reflective function because you would have to have reflective function to notice that you're not doing reflective function. This is a catch-22. So you find that when you get stressed, you, you stop doing it, but you don't know that. And what happens is that whatever you have in your mind becomes your reality as if it's happening. So, for example, a person could be on an airplane and, uh, well, let's go back to the heart attack idea. The person has the, the think they might be having a heart attack. They, the thought causes more stress hormones. Enough that they stop critiquing their thinking. They stop noticing what kind of thinking they're doing. So the imagination that they might have a heart attack morphs into, I'm having a heart attack. Mm. And that scares the hell out of them because now you've got a life-threatening situation and you're asking the difference between panic and anxiety. Here, life-threatening situation, how do you escape from it? You can't run and get away from your heart. So you're stuck. That's the, that's the thing about panic. You, 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 you're in a situation that could be harmful or fatal and you can't get out of it. Yeah, you know, I wish I would have had your book just a year ago. The volcano erupted here on 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 Hawaii, and we were evacuated from our home. And I went into full blown panic attack, and uh, and literally, we I fled the island like within twenty four hours without rational thinking, and just I was just I couldn't even think clearly because I was I was so afraid of like dying from the lava. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I just, your book, you have a really unique method in the book that is just, it's just, it's just different from everything else we've heard. So could you just tell us a little bit more about how your unique method particularly works to help get yourself out of this panic state? Yeah, actually, since we just talked about how when you get revved up, you can lose this ability to look inward and see what kind of mental processing is going on. Um, <clears throat> Fonagy says that this reflective function ability varies from person to person. Some people have really robust 
a reflective function that doesn't shut down very easily. And some people, it'll just shut down with the least little bit of anxiety. But it, it, in, either, in either case, when, it, when there's enough stress hormones to shut it down, whatever's in your mind, you just know it's true. That's it, period. Yeah. End of story. And, and so that's where you can't really do rational thinking because whatever's in your mind is true. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know the lava's going to get you if you stay. Yep. So you've got to get out. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, for example, on an airplane, um, when you're flying along and there's turbulence, when the plane drops, the amygdala, the part of the brain that releases stress hormones, has a knee-jerk reaction. What I mean by that, if you were on a stepladder painting the ceiling, no matter how much you were focused on getting the roller where you want it, not touching the wall, getting paint where you don't want it, no matter how much you're focused on it, if you lost your balance, you're going to totally forget about painting, and all you're going to be thinking of is headed toward the floor. Mm. So the stress hormones just punch right in there, which is great because, you know, <laughs> otherwise you might be lying on the floor still thinking about painting. <laughs> this is very protective. Now... But in the airplane, when the plane drops, you're going to get the same knee-jerk reaction, no matter how much you may be trying to keep your mind elsewhere. And that's what some people do. I pretend I'm on the beach, or I try to do a meditation exercise. I try to do something to distract myself. Doesn't matter. When the stress hormones hit, distraction stops. And when it stops, if you're depending on distraction to keep you out of trouble, now you've got a very sudden hit of trouble. Mm. So the plane drops. You get a shot of stress hormones. It drops again, and it drops again. Now it's like Indiana Jones in those movies where one thing after another, things happen. One drop after another after another. One shot of stress hormones after another after another. Somewhere in there, <clears throat> it's likely your reflective function is going to drop out. And then you're feeling the plane drop, right? You're picturing the plane heading down, and you shift from imagining the plane in a dive to knowing that the plane is diving and you're about to die. Yes. That's panic. Yes. <laughs> so, so back to, to the question is how do we how do we stop this? Well, first of all, it's it's helpful to know this this mental phenomenon. It's helpful to know that when you get stressed, you very easily can mistake your imagination for reality. Now, if you took a kid to a movie, you know, these Disney movies where there's animals and they get lost and they're never going to get back home again. If you have a kid and you take the kid to the movie and they start crying, you're going to tap them on the shoulder and say, honey, it's just a movie. Mm-hmm. So what I first try to do, and this is cognitive, is to try to say, look, you, you, you need to understand that just because you have something in mind doesn't mean it's true. You kind of have to say... I, I need to tap myself on the shoulder and say, just because I'm thinking it doesn't mean it's true. So that's for starters. That may not hold up, but that's what we we need to get that kind of across to, to start with. But how do we protect our reflective function so that it doesn't shut down on us and shift us from thinking whatever we're thinking, imagining becoming real to us? That is goes to the two things we need to do to keep from getting too revved up. One is produce oxytocin. We need to produce it on on an airplane maybe every five minutes to keep enough going to keep the fear system shut down, keep from producing the stress hormones. The other thing is we want to link the things that are going to happen on the plane 
to face, voice, and touch. Those three things that activate our calming system. So to kind of make this clear, we want to keep the accelerator pedal blocked. We want to keep the brake pedal pushed. We keep the brake pedal pushed by keeping in mind the face, voice, and touch of a calming person. Mm. We keep the accelerator pedal blocked by producing uh, oxytocin. <laughs> Let me tell you a funny story. I, I was doing a session a few, I guess a few months ago now, with a guy in Bangalore, India, who had read my book. And he said that um, just after he finished the book, and the book, the, the book on fear of flying does have exercises to teach you how to keep producing oxytocin every five minutes. It does teach you how to link to your your a friend's face, voice, and touch, those two things. But he had just read the book, hadn't done the exercises. So he got on the plane, plane got up to cruise altitude, and he said it got really turbulent. And he said he genuinely got just terrified. But he was able to think, but the book said oxytocin, oxytocin, yes, oxytocin. And so he started thinking about uh, one of the situations where oxytocin is produced. For males, orgasm produces oxytocin. Sexual foreplay produces oxytocin. And he said something very charming. He says, Tom, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm happily married. My wife and I get along fine. But for some reason, at that moment, I thought about my ex-girlfriend. We had the hottest sex you could believe. And so I started thinking of her, and the fear went away. And the turbulence lasted for an hour. And all that time thinking about her, I was completely calm. So oxytocin is pretty powerful stuff. But you don't have to do it that way. You can just say, okay, what are the things that are going to happen on an airplane, on an MRI uh, examination, mm -hmm. in a subway, uh, going across a bridge, going through a tunnel, anything that where there's a sequence of events that are going to occur and you want to be calm and protected from anxiety and panic during that experience, break it down to as many little pieces as you can. I mean, you don't want to go to McDonald's and swallow a Big Mac whole. You want to bite it piece by piece. So you don't want to take the experience and just try to link it, as he did successfully, though, <laughs> to one thing. You break it down into pieces and, um, and link each one to a memory of a time when oxytocin was produced. Mm. Link each one on a different day. I'd say back and forth, date one day and go to the next day and back and forth. Uh, link one day to oxytocin-producing memory link another day to face, voice, and touch of a person who's calling to you. Then when you're in that situation, your unconscious procedural memory is going to kick in and take care of you. And that was one thing I think you, you alluded to initially, how this part of the brain steps in and takes care of you. When, you're, when your thinking ability goes south on you, you've still got this unconscious part of the brain in the subcortex that can kick in. People who do high-stress jobs like policemen, firefighters, people who work in emergency rooms, when they have a life and death situation, they can't think very clearly. How do they perform? In training, they go through canned step-by-step -step procedures to deal with the situations they could expect to run into. So they say, okay, problem A, step one, step two, step three, okay, do those steps. Okay, problem B, here's step Five steps, maybe do five steps. Here's problem C, do two steps, whatever it is. So you learn this stuff, and you do it hands-on, and you train yourself for enough time that it gets built in. 
Mm. The best thing I can explain and compare it to is that when you drive a car, when you first learn, it's kind of difficult. But at this point, you, you have your unconscious procedural memory has learned how to drive your car, and you could have a conversation as you go down the road with no trouble at all. So we want the unconscious procedural memory to kick in and do these procedures to keep you linked to the calming influences as you do the exercise, as you do the thing that causes the trouble normally. Mm, okay, and I, I can relate a lot to that. Um, my father's a, a police officer. I was uh, I remember when I was training to be an EMT at one point, and, and just kind of in that upbringing between him and my own training, I do remember a lot of those exactly what you described because when I'm in a pressure dangerous situation I actually get hyper focused and calm and I think that's because I do remember in my training though they the whole training was worst case scenarios so that you would be prepared and so that you would stay calm uh, and be able to handle it with you know with with like clarity of rationality in those moments rather than you know if everyone else around you is hysterical you know someone's got to to hold it together so we can all survive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so if I'm understanding, I just want to kind of repeat the method back. If I'm understanding it for our listeners as well, the concept is to you're training yourself before the actual event happens to start building the subconscious automatic response to be uh, instead of triggering you into thinking that your fears are reality. Instead, you're pre addressing the issue and associating it with a calming effect so that when you are in that actual dangerous situation or scary situation, let's say it's flying or an elevator or something like that, you now, your mind is going to automatically trigger the calming oxytocin releasing experience instead. So you, it's almost like you're, 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 you're like rewiring your brain to handle these situations in a calming way. Is that, did I, uh, yeah, you're training that particular part of the brain the, in the subcortex because the subcortex isn't too bothered by stress hormones. So that that when your thinking part of the brain in the cortex has gone south on you, you it's kind of like you become your own first responder to take care of the panic. Uh, you just drop into what you've practiced. And, for example, let's say that you have linked... Um, the door of the plane being closed, which is a tricky moment because now you can't escape. Let's say you've linked it to nursing a child, if okay. you've nursed a child, or you've linked it to a sexual foreplay, or you've linked it to the face of your dog, dogs produce oxytocin. So mm -hmm. when you get on the plane, without having to even do anything at all, when the door closes, at an unconscious level, there's going to be a release of oxytocin because mm. the, the unconscious memory is going to be jogged. And is that what you call unconscious procedural memory? You've mentioned that a few times. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, active memory that you're conscious of is pretty limited. But your unconscious memory is vast. And so we can link up dozens, if not hundreds, of things that we want to associate two things or more together. So we want to say, let's say, we want to link walking on the plane, sitting down the seat, putting on the seatbelt, door closing, taxi, takeoff, cruise, et cetera, et cetera. Or if it's an MRI, just knowing that you've got to get one, mm -hmm. scheduling it, getting in the car, arriving at the facility, checking in, being taken to a room where you changed into a gown, 
uh, going into the room where the machine is, being invited, would you like to lie down here? <laughs> the machine is going to run right. you through this restriction and so on. So you break it down and you want to link every one of those things to the calming influences so that when it happens, you don't have to do anything consciously. Mm, interesting. So you're kind of taking that out because if you can uh, anticipate perhaps that all this is going to happen, it's kind of like you're priming yourself beforehand so that you kind of have your subconscious working for you rather than against you. Yeah. Now, what we've been talking about so far is situations that we know that there's going to be certain steps and you can right. link them up. What about this other problem? People sometimes say, I have a panic attack out of the blue. Exactly. Well, yeah. what can you do with that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What you can do is this for the next few days, and this is something you, people who are listening can use right now for the next, first of all, See if you can remember a person who you felt your guard let down with. The reason you need that is you need someone's face, voice, and touch who will activate your calming system as much as you can get it activated. A person who you felt your guard let down with maximum, gives you maximum activation. If you don't know of a person like that, just come up with a person who is, when you're with them, you know you're physically safe and you know you're emotionally safe. They're not going to criticize you. They're not even judging you. In fact, you know, it, you might even have a hard time finding that person because they're kind of boring in a way. They're not challenging to you. It's just they're so easy to be with you to mm. kind of take them for granted. So it's, it's easy to overlook the person you need to use for this. So it needs to be a person who's really easy going, maybe to the point that you don't even think of them as being special. That's the person who will activate your comedy system. So for the next few days... Every time you feel that you've gotten zapped, anytime you've gotten alert, anytime you've gotten alarmed, anytime you've sort of been surprised and you get some stress hormones, you know the feeling you start to get. Uh, immediately before you do anything, pretend you see that person walk in the room, say hello to you, and come over and give you a reassuring touch or a hug, depending on what your relationship is with them. So do you see what we're getting? arousal you're going to train arousal to trigger that person's face mm. you're going to get arousal to trigger that person's voice you're going to get arousal to trigger their physicalness that's calming to you so that arousal is going to cause calming automatically you see it's kind of like your cell phone rings and as soon as you answer it, it stops ringing what happens for people who have a lot of trouble with anxiety and panic it's like they're wired up so that if they were a cell phone, when someone calls and you answer it, the ringing never stops. And, and so for many people, their day-to-day -day living is like having a conversation on the cell phone that never stops ringing. They're, they're living their day-to-day -day lives with stress hormones just driving them up the wall mm. while they're trying to go through their day. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I think that this book is so helpful on a practical level for people. And like, like you've said a couple times already that it originally started with you just realizing, you know, the panic and anxiety people had to, to fly, but it, but it really just comes down to people living like on the ground with this anxiety as a perpetual state of beingness. And I think that this book is, um, really, going to help a lot of people overcome that in the, in, in the long term. But I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, wrap up this interview is as the author of, of Panic Free, what do you hope most that readers will take away from your book? Well, 
pretty much what what we just talked about that you can train your mind very easily to take care of you instead of having to go through day after day after day waiting for the stress hormones to burn off and then have them be kicked off by something else that this could be fixed now and also look if you if you've tried therapy and it hasn't worked try this because the problem with the therapies as we talked about earlier is that when you really get revved up you can't use them mm-hmm. what Absolutely. we need to do is to is to apply one that will work automatically for you right and and so the so the takeaway message yes we can fix it just do the steps and you will train your mind to bring in oxytocin production in situations that are stressful to downregulate you bring in the face voice or to prevent you from getting revved up bring in the face voice and touch of a person who's calming to you to activate your calming and you can link it to the situations of course but you can also link it to arousal itself Amazing. I, love it. I really feel like this book is yeah. is absolutely going to help anyone that's that's really struggling with this or maybe has uh, bouts of panic or anxiety. And so just in conclusion, we wanted to say the book is Panic Free. It's the 10-day program to end panic, anxiety, and claustrophobia by Tom Bunn. Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure. Where can everyone find more information on uh, buying the book and more information on yourself? Well, if you just remember the name Panic Free, you can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You have to actually just put in the title. Um, it's not popular enough that you can easily get it by just saying, what can I do about panic? It won't show up. Um, the other thing is I have a little website, uh, panicfree.net, not .com, but panicfree.net. Mm-hmm. Um, has some some things on it there. And if it's about flying, fearofflying.com. We have a lot of good stuff there that's free. And also, if you need it, of course. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Thank you Ashley so much. and I will start programming <laughs> and, and priming our mind for some unconscious procedural memory uh, yeah. right after this. Uh, <laughs> it's been it. an absolute pleasure, Tom. We really appreciate your time. Matt, thank you so much. And uh, Ashley, I look forward to hearing that you become panic free in just a few days. Yeah, yeah you know what's Let really know. funny is uh, just now the the we have these monthly sirens that go off for for the lava, and, um, and it's a test yeah. alarm. And just now, as you were just we we're wrapping this up, the the alarms in the neighborhood were sounding, reminding the me tsunami of, alarms, reminding <laughs> me of when the, uh, the when the lava erupted last year, and and here I am a year later, um, calm and learning to be panic free. So yes, it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. <laughs> Awesome.